Look, look, somebody on it. Hold on a second. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Obligations of Memory podcast for the Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance Group on Facebook and YouTube. I am thrilled to have um, my guests, um, Fred Zeidman and Ariella Tri-Cowdy. Yes, Tri-Handler. Thank you. And I'm going to turn it over to uh, Fred uh, to make the introduction. That's my dog. (laughs) Okay, no worries. Go ahead, Fred. Uh, it's my honor and pleasure to introduce my dear cousin, Ariella Getra-Hendler from Toronto, Canada. Uh, to, you'll find that, that Ariella is very engaging. She's a wonderful person, and she's also a warrior fighting against anti-Semitism and defending Israel, and she's a very, very uh, popular person on the on the, these chat rooms on, I, don't know, I forget what you call them. But anyway, uh, Ariella and my mother are from the same city. They live not far away and they're first cousins. And they re- reconnected after being liberated at their, their own camps. So without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to my dear cousin Ariella and take it away. Okay, and so Ariel, it's a pleasure to have you. And as a second gen, we're all three of us are second gens. I'd like to first ask you a little bit if you can tell us about your parents, uh, whether they're both survivors, a little bit about their pre-war lives, and then where were they in the camps? And then we'll take it beyond that to how they got out of the darkness of the Holocaust into the many phases of light. So please go ahead. I would love to do that. Thank you, especially to honor my parents who uh, died relatively young, I have to say. Uh, They, um, uh, both of my parents are survivors, though my father wasn't in camps, he he escaped. And, uh, but I'll I'll start with my mother. She lived at the the same uh, town that Fred's family lived in, Dombrovogonicha. And uh, they probably lived in the same neighborhood. And um, my father lived in a very small town adjacent to Dombova It was called uh, Zaguja. And they, they didn't know each other, but my mother knew, my mother knew her, um, my father's brother, my uncle. And uh, this area was very close to Auschwitz and that plays a role in the story and that's why I'm saying that it I it's only about a 20 to 30 minute drive from their town from Dombrova to Auschwitz so my mother was 19 years old when the Nazis came to Poland and to their town and uh they were in a ghetto and I have to tell you I don't know very much about it they did and talk very much about it and as I grew up I used to think as I was growing up I used to think that I I didn't know about it I didn't realize in my naivety and my immaturity how little I did know and I I realized when I got older that they just kept repeating the same few stories over and over again so uh, I know that as I said she was 19 her mother was young uh, and her father was a little older. Her father had been injured. He had been beaten up by um, by some 
anti-Semitic Polish people and had a permanently injured leg as a result. And, and so my mother was first taken to the camps. Uh, she was asked to go to a, a a Dukkungsplatz, you know, they brought them in. They had an edict saying all these women, all these people, certain ages, certain gender, have to meet in a certain spot in town. And then they were shipped off to a Dukkungsplatz, which is like the place where they go to before they're shipped to the camps. So she went to the Dukkungsplatz in, in Sosnovich, in, in Sosnovich, and it was a girls' school. And there, uh, I should go back, she had two brothers. My mother was the oldest and, uh, and um, she had a middle brother was Manyak who survived the Holocaust and the younger brother who I'm named after, he didn't survive. But uh, so she went to the Dorgangsplatz and uh, in Sosnovich and it was, a, it was a school. It was a secretarial school for Jewish girls. And uh, she was there for three days and she did tell me that her mother tried to get there, to go there. She did go there and try to see her. And of course, it was denied. She couldn't go see her. She couldn't go see her. But I, in my, imagine, I, in my imagination or faulty memory now, my mother, or I, I pictured that my mother saw her out the window or saw her down the stairs. And that that was the last time that she did see her mother. And because my mother was then sent to Blechamel, was the first camp she went to, which uh, later on became, a, it was a satellite of Auschwitz. And it was a, um, it was, um, later on became, became known as Auschwitz Five, I believe. And when she was there, they didn't tattoo yet. And, uh, and her brother, her middle brother, Maniak, he ended up going there. What, year, what year are we talking about, do you know? 1942. Okay. 1942. And uh, he, he ended up going there. And one story I know was that she stole potatoes to help feed her friends and her brother. And uh, she was caught. And uh, she was punished by having to kneel on stones. For 24 hours like for a full day she had to kneel on the stones and uh and another story i heard i'm not sure if this was at at um this camp because she she was shipped to one called um Oberalstadt, and this was in czechoslovakia i don't know what year and i don't know for how long and those were the only two that she told me about it wasn't until after she died that i learned that she was at a third camp called Petelswaldau, and that was in Germany, in the interior of Germany. And I imagine that she never told me about that one because it must have been like horrendous. So I'm going to take you beyond uh, the camp experience. So how did your um, parents move? Did they move into a DP camp? Where? And yes. how they eventually made their way to Canada? And was it Toronto originally? Or they... No, they started in Israel. They they went to a DP camp in in Germany, and uh, in, Stra in Straubing, and uh, they uh, they went to Israel in 1949. They made their way across to Israel, and they lived there for 11 years. My sister was born there, and I was born there. And after 11 years, in 1960, we all came to Canada 
to Japan. Why did you leave Israel? Uh, several reasons. My mother's brother, the middle brother who survived, he was living here at the time and she wanted to be close to him. And uh, my father had a hard time with warm weather. And also he was concerned about the army and didn't, didn't want my sister and I to go to the army. So those were the three reasons. How old were and you when you came to the Canada? I was less than five. I was about four and a half, very young. Consequently, I forgot my Hebrew, but I picked up Yiddish, Yiddish well, and English. It's yeah. very interesting because my parents came from Israel uh, in 1954, pregnant with my sister to the United States. One of the reasons, they actually gave two reasons why they didn't want to stay in Israel. Primarily, they didn't want to bring us also up in a war situation or a threat of war. They also were concerned about the constant devaluation of the shekel, which was really at the time in 1954, it was literally overnight, they would lose tremendous value. So they came in 1954 to the United States, Allentown. But go ahead. So you, you're, you have, they originally, they came directly to, to Toronto? They did. Yeah, they came to, you were, to you Toronto. Grew, you grew up in Toronto. So tell us a little bit about your life growing up with your parents. Uh, warm uh, relationship where they, go ahead. Um, their relationship was a little rocky. <laughs> My parents have to be honest, but I was very close to them. They were very loving, uh, very kind. Uh, my father wasn't religious. My mother was. <laughs> it was it was interesting. My father was like a communist, but uh, a socialist, I guess. And I, uh, they were just the greatest parents. They were just really nice. And, and unfortunately, uh, they were uh, struggled economically and had to work. They both had to work, and uh, and uh, it was. Uh, it was just a very... Are you the oldest? Or you're, you're, I'm the youngest. My sister is five years older than me. Okay. So are you close? Are we you were, close sisters? We were very close. Still we, are? Or? My sister unfortunately died about three oh, months ago. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. Didn't know. Um, so tell us a little bit about what your parents' occupations were. You said they had to work. What were they doing? Yeah, well, my father uh, was a house painter. He had been injured in the war, and he had been a student prior to, to um, while he was in Poland, but um, he became very disheartened after the war. Anyway, he became a painter, house painter, and my mother um, became a, she worked in a bakeries mostly. In, in Jewish bakeries. And uh, my father had an injured back. He had lost his kidney in um, a mine blew up during the war and he lost his kidney and part of his finger. And he had uh, back issues so he couldn't paint after a while. And he, um, they bought a variety store and they worked in the variety store for about 15, 15 years. A good friend here in San Diego whose parents were survivors from Bergen-Belsen and they had a candy store in Brooklyn. Hey. Yeah, wrote, a lot of Jewish people did at that time. <laughs> he, he actually wrote a book about his parents called From Bergen-Belsen to Brooklyn. Oh, wow. So it's a really interesting, uh, as I meet all of my friends, it, it, the, the stories all kind of come together in some way or some thread. So you... So tell us about you. Um, you you grew up. 
what were you, you're a teacher, so obviously you went to the university. Which university in Canada did you go to? Yeah, and... I went to York University for my BA, and I went to U of T for my B.Ed. And I, um, I was a musician, singer, so I became a music teacher for the Toronto board. And I, I loved that. I, it wasn't my intention when I first became a teacher. Sorry, that's my dog in the background, my cat there, and my I, husband coming to get the dog. So. They're, jealous, they're jealous that you're talking to me. So I, I, I <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I, uh, I'm an animal lover too, and I, uh, I, um, I became a teacher, and I was going to go into regular class, but I had a lot of music experience, so I was offered a job as a music teacher, and I, that was my spot. That was where I fit in. I absolutely loved it. I, I, I added drama and dance to my repertoire. And what, became, what kind of music do you enjoy? Are you do you sing? Do you play an instrument? I sing and I play the guitar. And uh, I play the guitar as an accompaniment to singing. So that's what I did. And um, You recorded any YouTube videos of your work? I did. I have some YouTube videos, yes. Oh, we have to talk about that. I don't know. <laughs> okay. And I, I wrote a song about my grandmother, too. Which, um, so I did that, and uh, I did it for over 25 years. I was a performing arts teacher, and I started in an inner city school, and I, then I, I uh, moved to a Jewish neighborhood school, and I worked there, and I, I used my class, my classrooms, and my subjects. There. I, what is it? I used my classroom and my subjects to teach about equity and anti-racism. That was really important for me. And I taught about the Holocaust and um, that was- explain some of the, um, one, how the student reaction to your teaching, what did you gain from it? And it must be something that you're, that still is in your DNA because as Fred mentioned, you're now an activist for anti-Semitic uh, education. So let's start there. I think it will be an interesting uh, place to start. Yeah, well, I, um, I did some work. I went on a generation to generation trip to Poland to see where we lived. And I, um, from there, I began, we went through uh, the Holocaust education uh, program in Toronto. And so I became involved with that. And when I became, a, and when I was, um, I if, you want, if you want to hold her or him, you're, so she's making so much noise. If you want to hold her, it's okay. No worries. Our audience wants to know who she is or he is. Yeah, this is, he's a Charlie, he's 19 years old. Oh, Charlie. I know, you want, I know you don't want us talking to mom, but we, we miss your mom. So you can, you can hang out with us. Okay, my husband's taking it. Okay. So I, I became involved with, with them. And I had, um, I, I've always been a bit of an activist in various ways. Uh, but as a teacher, as I said, I focused on on anti-Semitism uh, when I was about in my in my 20s I became aware I, I started to become aware of how naive and 
and and immature I had been and, and knowing and, and tried to get more information from my parents. So I became really interested in it and learned more about the Holocaust and started doing reading. When I went to university, I took courses on the Holocaust and just started educating myself more. I studied German so I could read documents directly and, and I, I really wanted to know a lot more and of course, a deal with the anti-Semitism and, and racism. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to be a teacher because I thought I could influence students that way. And so what were some of the reactions from your students when they heard oh, it? They were great. When, I, when, you, teach, when you teach about the, uh, the, through drama and through song, it really, it really is effective. They really felt it like when, they, when I talked to them or when I, they wrote um, uh, follow-ups on their activities. And it was really always very, they said they learned a lot. As a matter of fact, years later, some of them after they graduated, they get in touch with me and, and tell me how much it affected them. And, and some of them went into social, social um, positions as well and, and studied more about it. And they said, because it had an effect on them. So um, one of them I remember said, you didn't teach us music, you taught us about you know, social justice. <laughs> they, it just, it was a very effective way. I, there was, um, I would put them into situations and uh, and my messages all around my classroom were all about you know, uh, finding peace. As a matter of fact, there was one activity I have to tell you about, which was so great. Unfortunately, it came from a bad incident. My parents' uh, cemetery uh, was vandalized. So uh, I, I went to see if their graves were okay and if they had been damaged. And when I came back and I had gone in the morning and then I went back to school in the afternoon and I thought, well, what can I do with all this negative stuff that I'm feeling? And I talked to my classes, it was a grade eight class and we decided together that we were going to, I talked to them about how these people want to make us feel bad about who we are. And we decided we're going to do something. So we got paper chains, started making paper chains. And we made enough, like hundreds of them, hundreds of them in different colors with the word peace written in so many different languages. And we made enough. The whole school started to get involved from kindergarten to grade eight. And it took a couple of, it took a, a couple of months to get this done and to get all the school involved. And luckily I had two classrooms which were adjoining. So one classroom was filled from floor to ceiling with paper chains that were connected. And then on one day, the whole school went outside around, it was two buildings, around two buildings outside. And we started to pass the paper chains out the window. And we, because we, I said, we said we need to show the outside world that we're not going to let them make us feel bad about who we are. That was a wonderful activity and very memorable. What a beautiful, what a beautiful story. So tell us a little bit well, before we end, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now as an advocate um, to, I mean, obviously we, you're experiencing all over the world a, a gross, uh, I'll, I'll take a step back and explain, I'll give you a little story. I, I do programming for the group. I have uh, outreach to survivors from all over the world. I have 50 survivors who are now on my um, contact database and 
we get sometimes up to 12 survivors into a, one of my monthly programs that we do live uh, on Zoom. And we had a, we had a program and it was about anti-Semitism and five survivors were with us and I chose, and my parents never spoke to us at all about any of their Holocaust at all. Not, it was verboten to, to speak about my parents. It was off limits. And so I know nothing about the Holocaust other than what I've been researching of late. And um, so I, I asked the five survivors what they thought about the topic and whether, you know, what they felt about the growth of global anti-Semitism. And each survivor said they were deathly scared and they never thought that the Holocaust could occur again in their lifetime. And these are all people in their 80s and 90s. And it was such a momentous shift in my life because in the group, I've always, I always took a position that I really shouldn't bring in my point of view um, because I'm just the moderator of the group. And I really overnight immediately switched because I felt if my parents were still here, they would maybe say the same things that these five survivors would say. And I started to immediately aggressively inside the group, and we now have 3,200 worldwide members, um, to state the position of hate is not right and where I feel that hate could be coming from in the United States. And so um, it's interesting the reaction of the members that I have, because I have such a wide basis of diversity and um, that's going on in this membership. And it's interesting to see how the membership reacts to some of my posts. So we know what's going on here in the United States, but we certainly are not really connected to what's going on in Toronto or in Canada. So maybe you can give us a little bit of a background on, on the environment of anti-Semitism in Canada and what you're thinking about doing about it. Yeah, it's it's actually very bad here and it's, it's it mirrors what's going on in, in the States actually. Uh, we had, uh, of course, during the May, it's, it's all, what troubles me a lot is that, of course, we expected from the right wing, right, we expected from the white supremacists, but what troubles me is that, um, as a social activist myself, that I see it among my peers who are also social justice activists, and that's, that's very troubling, and that's where, um, uh, my activism is, is really focused on that and beyond teaching about the Holocaust. It comes from anti-Zionism, like the excuse, you know, using Israel as the excuse. As Rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs says, you know, it's the, it's the evolution of, the, of, of Zion and of, of anti-Semitism, right? When you use the term, uh, your social justice peers, are your peers Jews, Jewish? Or, or no, in general, how do you define social peers? How would you define such social justice peers? Well, I, I'm I'm an animal rights activist, and so I'm in that I'm in that community, and it's come out in that community as well. In which and how? Tell us, explain to us in well, what way, so we can so we can have a tangent understanding. Well, some of the members, many of the members in the in the animal rights community, are also intersectionalists. And the intersection, the intersectionalists um, have a tendency to exclude Jewish people. 
What is that for, for my benefit and the audience's benefit? Can you define intersectionalist? Yes, uh, it started as a, as a really interesting, as a really good concept, but it's when you're looking at, at, at degrees of oppression, I suppose is the way to describe it. So you look at the degrees of oppression. So a woman who is black would have two degrees which intersect with each other and she's oppressed because she's a woman and she's oppressed because she's black. And so, um, so a lot of these, and, and so it's, it's a way, it's, a, it's the latest way to show compassion and support of people who are marginalized in society. And so everything is looked at, whether you're LG, a member of the LGBTQ, whether uh, if, you're a, if you're a woman, if you're a, a person of color, if you're disabled. So if you're brown, you know, people of color are considered brown or black and uh, Asian. And though the Asian community is not very well backed up either because we're deemed of as like the Jews, they're, they're looked at as more successful, right? So the Jewish people are perceived of as white and, and, uh, and, and therefore we have privilege as white people. So our experience is not accepted in this community, even though we were killed and murdered by white supremacists right so we're we're left out and we're actually and and when it comes to israel we are perceived of as the white people oppressing the brown people in israel so this is of course false uh, and um but that's what's happening and so when i go on on uh, social media and I go on the animal rights social media platforms, I, I see messages and, and, and reposts of things that are anti-Israel, right? It's all blame, blame, blame. And I used to argue, I used to argue, spend hours with people that I thought were friends. And I would spend time talking to them and trying to show them both sides. And I'm saying, I'm pro-peace, but what you're doing is not pro-peace. What you're doing is steering up hatred towards the Jewish people. And then there's the whole denial, no criticism of Israel isn't, isn't anti-Semitic and this whole, and they're telling Jewish people, they're telling us what anti-Semitism is, and they're telling us that what we're feeling is wrong. It's, it's like, and you never do that when somebody's oppressed, and they're telling you that this is hurtful. You, you listen to them, you validate their feelings. That's the first thing I learned when I took anti-racist courses, right? You validate people's feelings. You don't tell somebody how they feel. You don't tell them what it's like to, and, and tell them that their experience as an oppressed member of a group is not, as a member of an oppressed group, is not valid. You don't do that, but these people are. And it's and it's growing, and it's even reached. It's now. It's 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 in the education system. You feel it a lot in the states. I know that there's a big there's a big um, um, out, outcry for how Jewish people are represented in the in the California curriculum. It's terrible. Like we're just left out, completely left out, and and we're oh, and or we're like put among the the people who are supremacists it's it's crazy it's like everything's turned upside down and 
inside out. It's like, it's crazy. And here in Toronto, the same thing is happening. I was just, we have students here, the right wing students who are now twice, there was a, a situation where kids in a classroom to their teacher put up the, the, the Nazi Heil Hitler thing that happened twice. We have students in high school who walked out of their school, just happened on Nak Nakba day. And in September, they walked out of school and, and put up signs, um, pro-Palestinian, wearing kafayas, put up big banners saying, is uh, Palestine uh, will be free from the river to the sea. And, and, and there was a huge letter now, just happened this weekend. I just found out about it where uh, students are asking the board, one of their boards in, in, in Ottawa, this is close to Ottawa, the capital of Canada, and they're asking that they, they, want, they want Palestine to be recognized. They want to they wanna know, they want to hear, you know, those, those, those words that are attached to anti-Israel uh, narrative, like we're, colonial, we're a colonial state, we practice apartheid, right, and we're white, and and all this and and they 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 want they want their voices to be heard and their voices condemn Israel and this is happening in the board and the board is not doing anything they're not they're allowing these things to happen and it's scary it is scary and I often say I'm glad my parents are no longer alive to witness this again. Uh, I have a similar uh, deep-rooted fear, and I often say the same thing to myself about what would my parents say if they were here. So I think what you're articulating is no different than what Fred is thinking and every other second-generational person who is living through this period of time, which is one has to scratch their head. But before I leave you, I have to ask this question. Maybe there's a nice story about the high that you have around your neck. And maybe you can tell us that story. Well, it's, uh, my sister gave it to me. So I, I, I started wearing, uh, well, I have a lot of Magandavids, but I, I put on the high. It's also the beginning of her name, which was Chaya. So it's a beautiful, it's, it's, in, it's sort of like an engraved gold. It's beautiful. Uh, it's very beautiful. Thank you. And I'm, I'm very happy that we were able to meet each other today through an introduction of Fred and my big, my big brother, Fred, over there. Who, my marvelous cousin. <laughs> who's four years older than I am. So uh, putting all this together, Fred, I want to thank you very much. And um, I'm going to end our program at this point and uh, say thank you to both of you. Thank you very much for this opportunity.